Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Leaders of the rich countries in the G7 try to speak with one voice when it comes to foreign policy. When the group next meets in Hiroshima, Japan in May 2023, it will be an opportunity for President Joe Biden to emphasize the strong links between the US and its allies. European members of the G7, Germany, France and Britain, have dispatched naval ships and fighter planes to Asia. Meanwhile, Japan is doubling its defence budget and is acquiring long-range missiles, which are capable of hitting the Chinese mainland. So has the G7 become an anti-China alliance, leading to a new Cold War standoff? And what is China's strategy when it comes to dealing with the G7? I'm pleased to welcome a guest who's offered to help us to engage with these important questions from an international perspective. Dr. Moritz Rudolph is a research scholar in law and a fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. Moritz, welcome to China in Context. Thank you. Now, I'd like to start with a question about the purpose of the G7. It was initially focused on the economy, but now it's gained more of a political nature. I suppose that's inevitable, given that it involves the heads of government of powerful countries. The meeting of G7 leaders takes place in Japan. What is its function in Asia? Well, I think that the G7, like it used to be the G8, and then the Russians get kicked out over the um, war in Ukraine in 2014. And since then, the primary focus has been um, for the G7 and focusing what is happening in Eastern Europe. But now with the presidency of Japan, they are trying to um, cause a shift of the focus of the G7 towards Asia, in particular towards, towards China. And they're not alone there, but they're the driving force. But the United States appear to be another country that is um, uh, reorientating the, the, the focus of the G7 um, towards China. I think we can expect the Japanese to push for a, a joint declaration that will have a strong Taiwan emphasis. As well as the leaders of the G7 countries, President Yoon from South Korea is also set to attend the meeting in Hiroshima. Can you say something about the significance of his involvement? Well, it definitely sends a strong political message. South Korea is in a really tough spot because their biggest trading partner is China and the biggest security partner is the United States. So um, with the G7 reorientating from economic to political issues, and then the South Korean president attending the G7, this sends a signal towards um, China. And um, it is something that, the, as we already have seen, like in the, in the weeks leading up to the meeting, where the Chinese side is very displeased with. That's true, actually. The, the Chinese uh, side has been negative. But then again, Mr. Yoon went to Washington, where he had a very positive reception from uh, President Biden. And also there were meetings in Seoul between uh, President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida. So, of course, China's been negative, but the rest of the uh, world has been quite positive about uh, South Korea's involvement in the uh, international dialogue, hasn't it? Yes, of course. Like for the G7, if you say that this is a group of uh, political like-minded countries, 
that have um, that share the same concerns politically about China, then of course it is like if you broaden the scope, if you just have more countries attending, that is definitely in the interest of the, the G7. And um, so this sends also a signal, of course, to the G7 and to the other, like to the Western countries that are part of it, that they're able to have the um, the South Koreans attend there as well, because they have tried to, ex uh, to extend this invitation. So this appears to be just like part of this general trend that you that you're seeing right now of different like um, regional forums or like-minded blocks that are just like trying to get um, win over more countries participating and joining them. Now, um, the G7 leaders will also be addressed by the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, via video link. What does that tell us about their position on international defence and security issues? Well, it is not that surprising, I would say, because like if you see how the like the priority areas of the G7 um, until the Japanese presidency this year has been um, like last year, Ukraine focused. So having um, uh, Zelensky um, address the group and being part of this discussion is, um, I think, like a logical continuation of what we have seen um, in the years before. And several G7 countries have been strong supporters of um, like military supporters sending military equipment to, to Ukraine. And we like this is a signal, I think, for the continuation that like the G7 is not only looking towards China with a with a Japanese presidency, but um, that like there's still like the, the the core focus on on the Ukraine and on the Russian war in Ukraine. You're in the United States, but you've got an excellent knowledge of European politics. The French president Emmanuel Macron provoked a backlash when he called on the European Union to reduce its dependence on the US, and he cautioned against being drawn into a crisis over Taiwan. Now, a lot of people took the view that Mr. Macron's comments were a threat to transatlantic unity. What was your perspective on what Mr. Macron said? Well, I think the timing for this and the way how it was expressed from the French president, given the current geopolitical environment and the increasing US-China tensions, it was maybe the wrong words at the wrong time. But at the same point, when it comes to um, like de-risking what Europe is uh, is promoting, like de-risking goes um, into all directions. It goes towards China, but you also have to think de-risking in the context of the U.S. presidential elections in 2024. And if there were another Donald Trump to emerge, so for the Europeans, they cannot bet everything just on one horse that would be strong transatlantic relations. So you need to have, of course, transatlantic relation is core, but you need to have a functioning relationship with China as well. So I think what, what Macron did there was, of course, he was, the, um, he, he was really direct in his words, but many um, uh, countries that have strong trade relations and economic relations with China I think they also don't want to get dragged into the conflict between the US and China because the economic costs of sanctioning, like if this really were to escalate to sanctioning both Russia and China, like the European economies, they, they, they just, it, it would be an existential threat for them. Oh, well, that's a good point, Moritz. Uh, perhaps uh, he should have handled it differently with regard to the media. And I must say, he was kind of pressed into making a comment about Taiwan while he was cornered by two journalists at the same time on an aeroplane while flying from one location in China 
to another. So it wasn't a very easy situation in which to uh, outline some rather nuanced uh, foreign policy, was it? Definitely. But look, the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, went to China in April, ahead of that meeting of the G7 foreign ministers, which took place in Nagano in Japan, and of course ahead of the leaders of the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, Japan. How do you read the German position on China now? Well, the German position on China, in Germany, you have a, you have a coalition government. And within the coalition, um, you have an, had a reorientation and like a soul searching how to deal with China. I think there's um, uh, all the coalition parties, they, they know that they have to um, uh, update their approach to China. But the question how to precisely do this, this is still very much up to debate. So for the Greens, the foreign minister, um, Annalena Baerbock, um, they are proposing a value-based foreign policy. So the values are the, the, the core from, the, from which you, you, you try to recalibrate the relationship. But the SPD from the federal chancery of, of Olaf Scholz, they are much more pragmatic and interest-driven than, um, than the Greens. But in the end, it is the federal chancellery that makes the key decisions on foreign policy issues with regards to the EU, the United States, Russia, and China. So I think what we see in Germany is like, like in the recent months, I see like the development towards a more like rational, interest-driven approach towards China, which resembles, I, I would say, um, um, a little bit more the, the, the French approach than the US approach, for sure. Mm, thanks for explaining that. Well, let's look at the United Kingdom. My view is that the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is taking a line on China, which is pretty close to that of the Americans and the Japanese. Having said that, there was a slightly less hawkish tone than I expected when Foreign Secretary James Cleverly gave a major speech on China recently. He talked about uh, cooperation and partnership where, where it was in both countries' interests to pursue that line. Do you think, looking at the G7, that it's really the British, the Americans and the Japanese, which are the most hawkish, and the Germans, the French, the Canadians, and perhaps the Italians are taking a more pragmatic approach? Well, I would say that the, the US, the, the Japanese and the UK are maybe most closely aligned when it comes to their foreign policy objectives. But the speech by the foreign secretary, I think it was also a sign of the um, uh, U, UK diplomats being able to strike the right tone and being really professional in their way to, to um, in, in their external communications. I think this is something that was that, like the words that were, were crafted in a really well manner and the, the, the audience is the Chinese side. Like they know that they are listening to this, but also the United States is listening to this. But I think it was just like a way of, of maneuvering through this complexity in a, just in a, in a really interesting but professional way. So of course, like you cannot just like turn on a light switch and just stop all your relations with China. You have to recalibrate this, but like in a more rational um, uh, approach. And I think this, is, this was a sign for rationality. And I think it's, it's, it's a good sign. But this doesn't change that in the end, when it comes to the policy alignment, that um, uh, I, I, th I think I would agree with your assessment. 
that it's definitely the um, like within the G7, what's seven is Japan, then the United States. And then you would say I would put the UK, Canada, and then from the from the other European countries in the spectrum, I would say that like the French, the Italians, and the Germans, they are the most uh, pragmatic and um, in, in this regard, looking for like a workable economic and political relations with um, with China. Well, I think I probably share your perspective on what Foreign Secretary cleverly said. I think it was a well-written speech and it covered a whole range of different points. Actually, though, of course, the Conservative Party's had a lot of trouble recently. The Deputy Prime Minister resigned over bullying allegations um, and then they did very badly with uh, local elections. So uh, certainly the Conservative leadership is under a lot of pressure at the moment and that's going to affect foreign policy, of course. But anyway, going back to the G7, how do you think China intends to handle its relationships with the G7 countries? I mean, it has rolled out the red carpet for a lot of visiting politicians recently. Uh, Chancellor Schultz went there in December last year. Mr. Macron was there recently. Would you describe this as a charm offensive? The density of the visits is partly because of the lifting of the COVID restrictions in China. The, the, the Chinese side appeared to have given up on the relationship with the United States. They know that both sides are interlocked and you just like, need to hope for some kind of rationality to come back, that they're able to actually solve their issues in a, in a nonviolent and future-oriented way. But at the same time, China is reaching out to um, other countries, especially in Europe, and trying to improve the relationship by signaling like there's actually a responsible great power that is able to facilitate a solution in the war in Ukraine, for instance. They know for the Europeans this is this is of key importance. And this for the G7, of course, is is a split, you know? They are like the, the priorities of Ukraine are much higher for the European G7 countries than for Japan. Well thank you, Moritz, for helping us to understand these crucial geopolitical issues. Dr. Moritz Rudolph there from Yale Law School's Paul Sai China Center on the line from the United States of America. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses and research on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.